All right, we are concluding our look at the seven spirits of God this week and focusing on the fear of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to come together and and talk about you. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be on us in, in this room today. Heavy to let us let us feel what it means to be under the weight of the fear of the Lord. Let us posture ourselves. in a way that is, is honoring to you, that is reverent for who you are. Let your message sink into our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are about to conclude the Foundation Series uh, next week. Andrew will be talking about um, Behold the Lamb, and then also transitioning us into our next series where we're going to go through the book of Acts. And so it's very exciting. So this is the last recap here that I'm going to be giving for the Foundation Series. I'm sure you're all excited that you don't have to hear this anymore, right? There's one. All right. Um, first one was Cornerstone, right? We remember that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's the starting place for everything, the one who put the everlasting kingdom in our hands. It's important to remember it's always Jesus where we start from. Start with Jesus and you work out from there. It allows you to, to see what was going on in the rest of the New Testament and what was going on in the Old Testament and be able to bring all that together if we start with Jesus. Then we talked about camp life. That was uh, looking about life in the wilderness. We focused on the rebellions from the book of Numbers, we looked at, at very closely, looking at how they are a, a mirror that holds up uh, uh, to us to be able to see our own rebellions and ultimately coming to see that it's, it's imperative to remember what God's done for us. Always wanting to look at what God has done for us, who he has shown up as for us, and, and staying focused on the mission he's given us and really, really being reliant on him for everything every day. Looked at the tabernacle next, and that was God wanting to dwell with us and and be with his people. And he made a way for that to happen in the Old Testament through the tabernacle. And, and we know that was just the beginning because it was through Jesus that we were made into the new tabernacle where his spirit would dwell in us. We looked at the priestly anointed after that, and that was Christ's priesthood, creating a, a new class of royal priests in us as the church. Uh, we know the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was called a royal priesthood, uh, and now that title of royal priesthood is reapplied to the church, which means it's reapplied to you. So in Christ, the church is, is a royal priesthood and a holy nation now. After that was looking at servant and son, and we looked at the servant of the Lord out of Isaiah and how that pointed us to Jesus and how he showed up to serve, uh, not to be served, and did so as a son, which is important because it's knowing your identity and who you are when you show up to serve, that you're doing so as a son, as a son of God. We were brought into the family 
through Jesus. And so we get to show up at, at the mission that God has given us to serve and to do so as a son. Following that, we looked at the altar and offering and, and being able to understand what Jesus did as the ultimate offering for us, that, that final uh, offering that atoned for sin and made way for us to enter into the presence of God without fear, which is, is we don't have to fear dying, entering the presence of God now, like they did in the Old Testament before Jesus came. After that, we looked at praise. And to do so, we have to be after the heart of God, like David uh, being called after God ones, after God's own heart. Uh, that's the mark on, on anyone who makes their life a life of praise, is that you are one after God's own heart. And Angie offered us some great questions in that teaching. And, and with all of the questions from that teaching and from the worship teaching, I, I hope that you are taking these uh, into your daily life and, and asking yourself these questions and, and looking at where are you applying them in your life? And, and those questions, what choice will I make in the middle of opposition? Am I going to praise or am I going to shrink back? It's an important question. It's always an important question to know how are you going to react in the middle of opposition? And you can't wait to, to start to understand what that means when, until you face opposition. This needs to be something that's happening beforehand. So you're trained, so you're ready, so you have those muscles built up to say, okay, in this moment right now, I'm going to praise. I'm not going to shrink back. There's also, what am I doing with my praise? Where am I placing worth? We're, we're always praising, we're always worshiping, we know that. What is that directed towards in your life? It matters because when you come into oneness, that's something you're going to be bringing into oneness. What is it you're offering worth? Then we talked about worship, looking at how we must exalt God to the point where we become small, meaning next to the, the fullness and holiness of God, we're going to feel small. But that shouldn't make us feel like meanings. It shouldn't make us feel like, oh, we could be built up in this. This is something that's there for us. Yes, we feel small next to it, but it's something that, that is there to build us up. More questions from that one were, can you measure the standard of worship uh, by feeling God? And obviously the answer is no. Feelings are going to lie to us at times. And so we have to just know that worship is not about us. It's about God. If we keep that in mind, we're not going to worry about what our feelings are telling us, whether we're getting goosebumps in worship or if, if somehow we're connecting with whatever worship is, typically for us in the West, music, singing. Does it make us feel good? I don't care if it makes you feel good. Are you offering worth to God? That's what matters, not how you feel. You're not always going to have this, this ooey-gooey feeling of connection to that. And you also talked about worship as a sacrifice. And, and a sacrifice in the Old Testament was about the burning of flesh. And offering up yourself as a sacrifice is not always going to feel good, which again is is part of the reason why we can't rely on feelings to measure how good worship is. Some of the questions from there, am I up for great sacrifice? Am I up to be a continually living sacrifice? Not everybody's going to be, but we have to be honest. This is really what is required as a disciple of Christ. 
and there is a demand on being a Christian to become a disciple because the, the, the commission is to go out and make disciples of the nations. How do you make disciples if you are not yourself a disciple, if you are not yourself up to be a living sacrifice? And so there's a demand put on that. God wants a pure and spotless sacrifice. Am I going to give him what he's worthy of? I think it's a, it's a pretty easy question to answer. It is not always easy to live up to the yes of, yes, I, am I going to give him what he's worthy of? Yes. What's he worthy of? All of me. What's he worthy of? Me putting myself on the altar as a living sacrifice. That's what he's worthy of. Next one's about prayer. And remembering that the basis of our approach to God in prayer is it's not our search for God. It was because God made a way for that to happen. All of those things that we look back on allowed us to be able to come to God in prayer, to make petition on behalf of ourselves, make petition on behalf of others, to bring what it is that is troubling us to him and then allow him to handle it. If, if we are truly uh, believing that our prayers matter, then we are going to offer up what is is a need for us, for others, to God, and allow Him to handle it. We're not to be worrying about those things after we pray about them. I have, I have an app where when I make highlights in books in Kindle, um, they come back up every day. I go through a little review of different notes and highlights and things I've made, and one of them that came back up a couple days ago was. Uh, one from uh, this uh, book about Smith Wigglesworth's life. And um, he talked about, in this book, it was talked about how uh, he was at a friend's house and they prayed for the meal. He said the blessing over it and they got done. And the woman who prepared it started apologizing for something and he told her to shut up because he had prayed for it and that was the end of it. Um it was blessed, and so that was all that was required. And, and so that, that's kind of the attitude I started to take in, in applying prayer is once you've prayed for it, the worry should be gone because you have left it up to God to handle in his way, however that works out. So it, while it's a, a small thing about the blessing over a meal, it is very applicable to the rest of the things that we pray about. Don't complain. There's more to that, but the first part of that was shut up. All right, after that, we started looking at the seven spirits, and we started with the Spirit of the Lord. And we looked at the Spirit of the Lord resting upon this messianic figure that was talked about in Isaiah 11, and how this resting upon him would be permanent, that it wasn't going to go away. Uh, it, it was going to stay with him forever. And that was something that was new. We knew in the Old Testament the Spirit of God would rest upon somebody to fulfill a certain task for a certain period of time, whatever role they were fulfilling, and then it would lift off of them. Lift off of them. So this was something new that was being introduced. And we looked at, um, in Luke 4, Jesus was in the synagogue, and he got up to read Isaiah 61, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped right there. He moved into a little bit of what we know as verse 2 uh, there, and, and he stopped. And he sat down and says, uh, today this, is, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, amazing that, that you hear this read, he sits down. Uh, which, again, is one of those things that says it gives the, the impression that once you sit down, the work is done. There's nothing more that needs to be done. It is telling them that work was fulfilled. After that, we talked about the spirit of wisdom and wisdom being the general capacity to have right judgment in all things. Uh, we looked at the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. And we're going to explore that a little bit more today. We talk about purely human wisdom. It has no ultimate merit on its own. And um, Isaiah 29, 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So, again, purely human wisdom. No merit on its own, separated from God. If you If you take God away from the wisdom, then what you what you think you know is not going to be sustained. We also talk about the wisdom of God as being revealed to the world, to the life and ministry of the church. Through us, what we do as the body of Christ, it matters. It is revealing God to the world. Ephesians 3.10 says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And as we get into the book of Acts, that's going to become a little bit more apparent too. what the end of that verse is talking about. Talking about the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We get to show off God's plan to them as well. And we're going to get more into that in Acts. That's going to be fun. So since wisdom is rooted and grounded in God, true and spiritual wisdom, it's God's gift to us. We can't forget that wisdom from God, it's a gift to us. After that was the spirit of understanding. And understanding is the God-given perception of the nature and meaning of things, resulting in sound judgment and decision-making. In particular, the ability to discern spiritual truth and to apply it to human disposition and conduct. So understanding is going to allow you to see beyond the wise decision, right? We talked about data, the knowledge to, or to information, the knowledge to wisdom, knowledge being head knowledge, not what the spirit of knowledge was talking about, which we'll, we'll get to here in a minute. And how once you get to, to wisdom at the end of that, you start to be able to make good decisions because you put everything together and, and, and everything we're talking about not separated from God's wisdom. And understanding allows us to be able to walk this out and to be able to see beyond that. So that's what we're looking at there. We looked at a lot of scripture that week from both the Old Testament and New Testament. But it shows that understanding involves cognitive, uh, spiritual, morality. It encompasses all of us, all of our being. But that, that human efforts, uh, while they are called for, uh, the ability to understand, it comes from God. And the final test of understanding is obedience to God. 
that's where we know we're, we're starting to get understanding is, is obeying God is not something that is difficult for us. We start to be able to see what it is he's showing us, what it is he's revealing to us, the wisdom that he's given us. It allows us to have understanding for what's coming. It makes obedience that much easier. And more fun. Yes. And, and no matter what, the attitude of fun is something that needs to be maintained. All right, after that was the spirit of counsel. And the spirit of counsel, this is there to, to help with making plans, help for, for laying out purposes. It aids in, in decision-making uh, through really helping us look at different courses of action. And the counselor, the spirit of truth, this, this is Holy Spirit, and he teaches us uh, and reminds us as believers uh, regarding the things of Jesus. That's really ultimately what is being done here is the revealing of Jesus to us through him, through the counselor, through the comforter. And we know that he's not going to leave us. We have an indwelling. We are the tabernacle, which means Holy Spirit indwells us, lives in us permanently. This is this is that uh, permanent resting of the Spirit of the Lord, right? So to experience him is to experience Jesus. So we, we looked at the people around us. We looked at the counsel we give, the counsel we receive, and how it should just be saturated with the Spirit of counsel, which means it's saturated with Holy Spirit. After that was the spirit of might. And looking at the Hebrew word used in Isaiah, we found a lot of different definitions. Power, strength, might. Power is the most common word that was used throughout the Bible when talking about might. A lot of different ways that it, it could be applied. But when we put everything together, it gives, a full, uh, gives us a picture of the full weight of the spirit of might that was uh, ascribed to the messianic figure in Isaiah 11 too. And you know, to Jesus and, and ultimately what can, what can be applied to us as believers, as those who believe in Jesus. We also looked at Samson and how he had great physical strength, but lacked inner strength because he was, he was weak when it came to women. So we can't forget that physical strength needs to be combined with inner strength. External strength, it must be coupled with the even more powerful inner strength. We looked at this inner strength in Matthew 26, uh, which was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying before going to the cross. And this was, this was inner strength on display. He said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And taking that last part, we can use that as a declaration over ourselves in, in building up uh, inner strength. Not as I will, but as you will, God. It takes a real inner strength to be able to declare that and then not worry step into it knowing full well that you have access to all of these things that we've been talking about after that was the spirit of knowledge this was last week 
and the spirit of knowledge, we looked at the connection between knowledge and relationship. We focused closely uh, on the fact that the spirit of knowledge is is about connecting connecting relationally through your heart and not through your head. This is not about uh, uh, filling your mind with with facts and figures. And, and full knowledge is is possible only through Jesus. We have to have a relationship with Him. Uh, in the Book of John, knowledge is expressed uh, in in Christians, uh, which really brought about belief in Jesus because it was on display. The relationship was on display. It wasn't just about, oh, I've memorized these things, now I can spit them out to you, like a good little Jewish boy or girl. So Jesus' knowledge of the Father was direct. Our knowledge is indirect. But that's qualified by us believing. This is the important thing to remember is, is belief. Is, is the one thing that we have that, that allows us to access all of these things. It's simply believing. All the work, everything was done on our behalf and it's already been done. Do we see everything fully manifested in the world today? No, not yet, but it's already been done. So it, it's, it's an interesting thing to be able to, to look at and, and Try to wrap your mind around the already, but not yet. Our knowledge of Jesus is the, the perception of Jesus as the revelation of God that leads to relationship and obedience. Obedience is coming out again. When we have that, that relationship and that knowledge of God, that connection with the heart, then there's going to be obedience that follows again. Just you're, you're not going to be able to to separate obedience once this connection starts to take place. So it's about your intimate relationship with Jesus. That's what we talk about when we're talking about knowledge. So today in our discussion on the fear of the Lord, I don't want us to simply walk away with understanding of this. Uh, I, I want I want to be able to say that you have either had an encounter today. Or you are looking forward to one the end of today, tomorrow, every single day to have an encounter. Talking about the fear of the Lord is one thing. Experiencing that is something else entirely. Experience is always going to leave a more lasting impact on us personally. It's also going to be able to leave an, a, a better impact on the people that you encounter the people that you have interaction with, your encounter with the fear of the Lord. So my hope is that we walk away, <clears throat> or we walk through this today and begin to see what an encounter will do, not just in your life, uh, but what it will do when you start to, to walk in this fear as part of, of your character and bring that into oneness. Then you can let your discernment take you to what happens when the body of Christ takes on the posture of fearing Yahweh. It's going to change things. It's going to bring on something completely different. So I want you to be open for a collision of your being as a believer with the fear of the Lord. Who wants an encounter with the fear of the Lord today?
was apprehensive about an encounter with the fear of the Lord. Okay. So, yes, yes, we want the encounter, but there is still apprehension that comes with that. I mean, that's, that's an honest assessment. There's going to be some apprehension about that. But I hope there's a willingness to still have the encounter. So in, in uh, Isaiah 11, the Hebrew word for fear is yirah. And again, there's different definitions of this. So in English, when we talk about the word fear, it doesn't always have a good, good reputation, right? It, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, say, I want to run towards that. Typically, it's something we want to run away from. But when we start looking at the word yirah, the first definition, again, multiple definitions for words when you look it up in the dictionary, right? For, for this word, the first definition is reverence. Reverence. A state of piety and respect toward a superior. Exodus 2.20 says, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We're going to come back to that one in just a little bit. The second definition of fear is, of yurah is fear. And that's just a state of great, great anxiety and alarm. Deuteronomy 2.25 says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. This was something that God was putting on the people of the nations about his inheritance, Jacob and Israel. This uh, uh, also in Jonah 1.10, it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, said to Jonah, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they were scared. They had this, this terror of this great anxiety and alarm. The third definition of Yurah is worship. The act or speech of showing profound reverence toward a superior, which may include ritual action. Psalm 5, 5, 8 says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Job 4, 6 says, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? This is worship. This is another uh, definition of the word Yerah, which is translated to fear. And the fourth and, and last definition is awesomeness. That which causes wonder and astonishment. I love that. Ezekiel 1.18 says, And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Great imagery there. What else could you do to see something like this in this, this description of, of the glory of God and, and the throne and all the things going on in heaven? Awesomeness. Full of awe. Pretty crazy. The Greek word is, is 
Phobos, and that's more of what we would associate with here. Um, a state of terror, a source of occasion, or a source or occasion of fear, uh, and the third one was reverence, uh, a worshiping respect. And so, um, after hearing those definitions, you know, being ready to encounter the fear of the Lord, when we look at the Hebrew word of Yerah, there's, there's one of four that, that talks about anxiety or apprehension. The rest are, are exciting to look at. And, and so I hope your, your apprehension maybe about having an encounter with the fear of the Lord is, is a little bit less. But we could take uh, what we see from these two languages and, and put them into an English definition that really captures the essence of what is being communicated. And that is a profound mixture of awe, reverence, and respect for God, coupled with a deep-seated willingness to obey his commands and live in accordance with his will. This fear is not driven by terror or apprehension, but by a deep sense of trust, humility, and a desire to please God. I think that is a definition for English when we're talking about fear in Isaiah 11:2 that we can actually uh, look at because it captures the, the positive and really transformative nature of fearing God. This isn't something that should cause you to shrink back. It's not about cowering before a, a fearful deity, right? Before a, a fearful God. It's not about that. It's about embracing a, a reverence and obedience that leads to a, a, a righteousness, that leads to joy. That's really ultimately what it should be taking us to. So after hearing that definition, is there still any apprehension? A little bit? Still a little bit? We, we, should, we should have apprehension, um, yes, because it is God, but not because of our English understanding of fear. All right, the, the act of fearing Yahweh, it's, it's discussed throughout the entire Old Testament. It, it's, it's a concept that occurs prominently uh, in the Old Testament's wisdom literature, which is Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Uh, Song of Songs, it's sometimes included in the list uh, because of affinity with wisdom literature uh, themes, uh, and so are several of the Psalms. Uh, where it's described as both the beginning uh, of, of wisdom and the responsibility of all humanity. So that's, that's one of the concepts when we look at fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. It's described as the beginning of wisdom and the responsibility of all humanity. And we know in Proverbs 9.10 it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So there's connections there when we start looking at these things. We start understanding, okay, this is what they mean by knowledge here knowledge of the Holy One, knowledge of Jesus, that's, that's real insight. Sunday school is coming. Sunday school is coming. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I've been thinking that all week, so. 
the fear of the Lord as, as a dominant idea, it, it occurs in three different ways in the Old Testament. And the first is an expression of, of corporate Israelite religion. And this is just that religious system of worshiping Yahweh. Occurrences of the phrase fear of the Lord uh, in, in really kind of just the general way that it was used was about religious piety. And that, uh, that really just appears mostly in the wisdom text that we just mentioned. So in this sense, the fear of the Lord is, is just, it's just essentially just a component of, of Israel's theology, what they believed about God. It means faith in Yahweh. The second was uh, a description of personal piety, you know, the act of worshiping and just obeying. Deuteronomy 5.29, God declares to Moses that he has a desire that his people would fear him enough that they would obey his commandments. This, this leaks over into that apprehension there, uh, just enough to lead to obedience, where then that connection could be made. The knowledge could start to come, and then there would be a desire, a want to be obedient. The, the apprehension of portion of fear just wouldn't be there anymore. And we know that fear could be expressed as positive uh, obedience, which was caused by reverence and, and not that apprehension piece, uh, but it could also be negative, you know, obedience caused by, by the threat of punishment from God. And we know that came, came a lot. There was the, that threat was very prominent leading up to the exile. The third way was as an identification of a religious person, a, a worshiper of Yahweh, a God-fearer. You know, Joseph identified himself as a God-fearer uh, when he was reunited with his brothers in Genesis 42. Jonah identified himself as a God-fearer uh, when he was questioned by the sailors. It took him running away, getting on a ship, finding themselves in a storm, and then being interrogated by the entire crew as, as what is happening here. And he finally admitted what's going on. So the context of how the fear of the Lord, fear of God, fear of Yahweh, all the different ways that it can be said uh, is used in the Old Testament. It's really pointing us towards uh, reverence. It's pointing us towards the posture that we take. And it's pointing us towards obedience. We as believers, we are identified as uh, uh, the children of, of Israel, the children of God. And uh, in, like in the Old Testament, they, they were looking and hoping in, in the Messiah that was talked about in Isaiah 11, the one we've been looking at. So the fear of God that they carried was one that, it was one that should have pointed them towards those qualities of, of character that we mentioned, you know, uh, uh, reverence, posture, being postured correctly, and, and obedience. It should not have been something that points into rebellion, in, in rebellion against the Creator, against the Most High God. And the Most High God, that is an important title to keep in mind, too, as we start to move forward into 2024. But it was in that rebellion that they experienced fear in a way that 
wouldn't have had to be that way had they maintained the awe of Yahweh, had they maintained reverence, the, the, the real reverence that he deserves. If they had maintained that, they wouldn't have had to experience Yura in the way of, of apprehension. They wouldn't have had to, do, to endure the exile uh, or, or feelings of separation from God or a sense of, of dreading contending punishment. None of that needed to happen. It wasn't necessary. But they, they stepped away from the fear of the Lord. They stepped away from reverence. And that sent them in the wrong direction. That understanding of, of fearing God in that way of apprehension, that's not meant for us. That's not what is meant for us as believers. The understanding of fearing God is, is only in identification as his children. Uh, it, it's only in identification of, of his children who hold reverence for him. We need to be postured in worship or worship. And, and we need to be those who remain radically obedient. The New Testament, it also contains references to the fear of the Lord. Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So there, this is recording what happened after Saul's conversion. Acts 9.31 so when walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we should be seeing multiplication. We should not be seeing division. We should not be seeing fighting. Multiplication, that's what we should be seeing. The character that the body of Christ, Jesus' church, needs to be walking in, leads, and is followed by the fear of the Lord. We looked at the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. If we're looking at this this list in Isaiah 11:2, it, it really starts with the fear of the Lord and ends with the fear of the Lord. The infighting that really keeps the church as a whole from from peace and being built up uh, could be curbed if we would all hold on to the reverence of God. If we were to hold on to that, if we were to posture ourselves in worship and and be radically obedient to Him. We wouldn't have to worry about this infighting because it wouldn't happen. The New Testament writings also mention a group of people known as the God-fearers. Just like in the Old Testament, we saw that same thing. Um, and this is, one of those was Cornelius. And in Acts 10-2, it describes Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, as a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. It's really an interesting description of a God-fearer, especially when we're looking at the application of who it was presented to. It was, it was placed on a man who was part of the oppression of the Israelites, of the Jewish nation. Nowhere did that description, description worry uh, about punishment. There was no mention of worrying about punishment in that description. Or about arguing and fighting really in an effort to 
to be right and have others conform to your preferences. There's no description of that in there. It's an interesting thing when we look at who it's applied to and what isn't there. However, we see those things in Christians, in God-fearers today. All right, question time. Does perfect love cast out fear? Yes. It says so. There are some very influential people out there right now, though, who have said a lot of really good things, contributed, you know, really greatly to the kingdom and its expansion. Uh, they have done some great work in, in pursuit of making disciples of the nations. But in that work, there's been some statements that seek to influence believers away from the fear of the Lord. In particular, the verse, 1 John 4.18 is used. This is where your Bible tells you so. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So the answer to the question is yes. Perfect love casts out fear. But they'll use that verse to say that Christ ushered in perfect love and grace over us through his saving act on the cross. Still not wrong, right? Yeah. That's true. We have access to perfect love and we have access to grace. But the context being used here leads believers away from reverence, away from awe and, and awe from posturing in, in worship because Jesus is worth worthy. They're, they're trying to say that the fear of the Lord is also something that is cast out by perfect love. If we are, if we are to believe that, everything that we've been talking about there is wrong. But if you're to quote the entire verse, 1 John 4, 18 says, in fullness, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The use of fear here has nothing to do with the definition that we're working with, and nothing to do with its usage in Isaiah 11 too. Not even close. If it did, the Messiah who is delighting in the fear of the Lord, which is in Isaiah 11, 3, is delighting in the expectation of punishment? Is that what's going on there? Does that make any sense? No. The expected Messiah spoken about in Isaiah 11, 2, who is delighting in the fear of the Lord, is delighting in reverence for the Father. Standing in awe of him, teaching us to be postured in worship and be radically obedient. That's what's being modeled for us, not fear of punishment. Did he embrace the, the punishment of, of really us, from us, for us? Yes. But that's not what the fear of the Lord is talking about. It's not focused on punishment. It's not focused on that. It's focused on reverence. Yes, perfect love casts out fear. However, it casts out fear of punishment. We have to read the verse in its entirety and not just pick off the front part of it. That's not fear that leads us to be on our knees in front of our creator, the most high God. 
So if you hear this argument being made, it's likely there hasn't been an encounter with that reverent definition of the fear of the Lord, or it's just been a really long time since they've had one, and they need to get back to it. Either way, know that you're not to eject the fear of the Lord uh, in, in the face of perfect love. The two are, are not butting up against each other. They are actually pulling together. So I want to look at, at the book of Proverbs kind of as a whole here for a little bit and thinking about application. So in Proverbs, fear of the Lord, it's a, a fundamental theological idea. We know that. It's, it's laced throughout the entire book of Proverbs. According to Proverbs 1, 2, it says to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. That's the purpose of the book. It's to teach the reader wisdom and discipline. And then you can see in chapters 10 to 31, and that's where most of the Proverbs are contained, uh, wisdom is, is a practical category and really a skill for living. So the Proverbs, they're, they're concise observations, right? Authoritative. Uh, counselings, uh, prohibitions, do this, don't do that. Uh, and, and really is discouraging of, of behavior that is considered foolish. Proverbs 10.4. Proverbs 10.4, as an example, says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So that, that first behavior... The slack hand causes poverty, that's would be considered foolish. And the hand of, of diligence or diligent hand makes rich. That is wise. But this this proverb it, it seems to seems to lack some theological content. And this is true only if we read it outside of the context of the entire book. So we have to keep the entirety of it in mind. And you can look at Proverbs in a couple of different ways. And, and one of those ways being the first nine chapters are kind of a preface to the next, to the rest of the book. So in Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the, the preface, we're looking at the preface as the first nine chapters. There's a series of speeches in there. And so chapters 1 to 9, it, it gives us, kind of uh, introduces the Proverbs in, in the next chapter. So um, they provide a lens uh, through which really individual Proverbs and those in the later chapters should be read. It's interesting that we find the teaching about the fear of Yahweh being the beginning of knowledge. Not only at the beginning of this, this preface, but, but also at the end. Because we know in Proverbs 9, 10, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One's insight. But again, there's that difference worth noting there. The first instance, knowledge is used, and wisdom is used in the second instance. So if we think back, we've already started to make these connections, right? We think back to last week and, and start to connect there with that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of you connecting with God in intimate heart knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of you connecting with 
the wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might of God. The Spirit of the Lord is, is resting permanently within you because you believe in Jesus as the Savior, the one true way to the Father. The fear of, of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is to stand in a subservient position to him, to acknowledge your dependence on him. This dependence, it really seems to fly in the face of human wisdom. If we are wise in our own eyes, what's that tell us? Think back to camp life. What do they do every morning? They had to collect manna, right? They had to be dependent on God for everything, for food, for water, for protection. They had to be dependent on him to know when to pick up and move and when to stop and set up camp. It was everything. It wouldn't have looked, it wouldn't have been looked at as wise by men's standard, by our standard, to be reliant on God for daily sustenance. What would be wise to us would say, you know, we need to store some of this up so in case we run out. We have a, a storage full here, right? We would, we would want to gather while there was abundance. But if you remember, that it was an imperative to rely on God for everything. When we looked at camp life, there was a reliance. And it was, it was without question, this had to happen. They had to collect their food daily, obviously, except for the Sabbath. They would have enough left over for that. God provided for that as well. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What does it mean that an attitude is the beginning of wisdom? The word beginning, it has the sense not only of first, but also of foundation or even source. And it's, it's really interesting to think of it like that. The foundation of knowledge and the foundation of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So we've been talking and calling this series the foundations, right? Being able to, to lay something solid that we can build on. The fear of the Lord is the source that brings us into intimate relationship with God. The fear of the Lord is a source that brings us into his wisdom, into his understanding, into his counsel, into his might. There's an author and theologian named Lloyd Baer, and he said, fear of Yahweh is the first step, square one, in the quest for a meaningful existence. This means that there can be no wisdom or knowledge apart from relationship with God. The, the meaningful existence, the purpose that we carry into life starts there. That's the source, that's the foundation. So on one level from the viewpoint of, of Proverbs and really the rest of the Bible, this makes perfect sense. Again, if we're starting from Jesus and moving outward, this makes perfect sense. How could someone be considered wise if they don't know the most basic and important thing about the universe? 
thinking about life with the acknowledgement that God is at the center of the universe and not us. We have to be able to do that. This perspective, it also means that we listen to God about how we live life. How we walk out life every day. Which again brings us back to obedience. You can think of, of the Garden of Eden and the choice that Adam and Eve made to reject divine instruction. You know, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But under the influence of, of the shrewd serpent, shrewd in this instance meaning wisdom gone wrong, they replaced divine instruction with, with their own assertion of what was right and wrong, what was good and bad. Wisdom beginning with a relationship with God demonstrates the very concept is, is theological and not just practical. It's not just a practical thing. In other words, uh, Proverbs 10.4 that we looked at earlier is, is giving more advice about how to avoid, avoid poverty. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of diligence makes rich. By implying that, that hard work uh, is wise and laziness is foolishness, it, it's just saying that, that hard work and, and doing so in reverence for God, those are, those are acting like proper worshipers of Yahweh and, and those who are lazy aren't. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and, and really sometimes functions as a close synonym. Both are connected, though, in ethical behavior. Wisdom uh, proclaims in, in Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. This is what wisdom is saying. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So relationship is the goal. That is the goal. Apart from relationship with God, there is no wisdom or knowledge, or counsel, or understanding, or might. In Psalms, uh, there is the same em emphasis as in, in Proverbs on the posture toward God in relationship with him. The phrase, those who fear Yahweh, or, or those who fear God in the Psalms, is a way of referring to God's people. It's found in connection with the righteous, the, the descendants of Jacob, and, and those who are obedient to God's law. God fears are those ones to, to whom God reveals his covenant. And, and, and the hope of those God fears is in his covenant love. Psalm 25, 14 says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast salvation. Excuse me, those who hope in his steadfast love. These God fears, they are the ones who have taken refuge in God and experienced his deliverance. 
Psalm 31:19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have restored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The, the expression refers to his people who worship him. And, and Psalms expresses the hope that in the future, all people and all nations will fear him. Psalm 33, 8 says, let all the earth fear the Lord, that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Again, the emphasis isn't on apprehension. It isn't on worry. It isn't on fearing punishment. It's about standing in awe of him. So it's not a future hope that all the people and all the nations will fear God because he's you know, about to drop the hammer that's not what it's about. The future hope uh, of the future that we live in now, it's, it's all about people and the nations who fear God in a manner of reverence toward him, posturing and worship of him. And that's because he's, he's, the word, he's the one who's worthy. And then also being obedient. In Psalm 86, 11, it says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So here the psalmist asks God to give him an undivided heart in order to fear him. God, give me an undivided heart so that I will fear you because surely you're about to punish me. No. No. God, give me an undivided heart so that I will look upon you with awe. God, give me an undivided heart so that I will approach you with reverence. God, give me an undivided heart so that when I posture myself in worship, I'm offering you something of worth. God, give me an undivided heart so that I will choose radical obedience. There's so much more that we can get into with this, but, but I'm sure by now you're getting the idea. Turn to Isaiah 11. We've been focused on Isaiah 11 too, uh, but I want to take you just a, a little bit further into this. I just want us to look at the first five verses. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with his rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt 
of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his wounds. His delight, the delight of the Messiah spoken about here is in the fear of the Lord. In all the ways of reverence that we've examined and none of the ways of punishment. Sometimes we think punishment is deserving. But that's just out of our, our sense of justice that's been perverted away from God's definition. The connection to the Father and intimate relationship, it allows us it allows us to see what it is that he's doing. It allows him to judge in the manner that is described here. Yes, this this fear of the Lord. It is. It's about all the ways we've examined the reverence, the awe, the wonder. It's not about punishment, regardless of how deserving we think punishment is because we have perverted justice away from what it is that God defines it as. We look to to strike back in, in vengeance. We look to strike back in retaliation or retribution for something we believe is wrong. However that looks, whatever form that punishment takes, it's a perversion of what it is that God defines as justice. You remember back to the priestly anointing and the, the altar and offering. Do you remember? It's from a little while ago we recapped it. Do you remember what was done on your behalf? Do you remember what you were brought into because of the ultimate sacrifice, that final offering on the unassuming altar that was the cross? Do you remember what was done? The ultimate act of salvation done by the, the final high priest made way for us to be called a chosen race, made way for us to be called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Our encounter with, with the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the foundation that sets us in the right posture before God with the right attitude toward God and the right response to God. I, I hope there's no hesitation in encountering the fear of the Lord. If there was any hesitation before, I hope there isn't now. Apprehension's fine. I understand that. Um, we want to make sure that we, we present ourselves reverently and posturing right before God. But he, he knows our hearts. He knows that desire. So if we, if we mess it up, if we, if we miss the mark on that, there's other opportunity to come back and do it again. We, we don't have to fear in the sense that we'll be punished. We can't let the fear of the Lord be something that's rejected because of our common definition. Common meaning shared understanding, but also low level. It's very low level to look at fear as the apprehension or the anxiety that's brought on when we're thinking about 
punishment that could be coming. That's a very low-level way to look at it. Don't let the fear of the Lord be something you reject because, because of a bad theological stance that casts the fear of the Lord in with punishment. Fear is, is a virtue. We can look at it as a virtue that leads us to, to that right response, that leads us to reverence, that leads us to awe, leads us to praise and humility. Because the one who fears God recognizes that God, not himself, is the center of the cosmos. The center of everything. We need the fear of the Lord to, to live fully yielded to him. If we are going to be radically obedient, we need the fear of the Lord. I want you to turn with me to one last place. Second Chronicles chapter 26. Yes, Second Chronicles, chapter 26. Second Chronicles 26, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his father. So once his, his dad died. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of, Jer of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God, in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. It's very interesting. There's a, there's a promise that comes with the fear of the Lord as well. Not only is it the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of, of access, there's also a promise of prosperity there. not a promise of, of lack of opposition, so don't misunderstand. So I have two questions. How could you walk in greater fullness if you possess the character that was cemented foundationally with the fear of the Lord? How could you walk in greater fullness? That was part of the character that you carry every single place you go without fail. And the second question being, what could the church, Jesus' body, what could the church accomplish in making disciples of the nations if our source was the fear of the Lord? That thing we looked at earlier in Acts that said, multiplication followed it. Peace was there because that's where they started from. Was the fear of the Lord, the the reverence, the posturing and worship. 
that worship that was really about God and not about how uh, good we would feel inside of that. Really about looking to something outside of self. What could the church accomplish if that was the case? We, we look at, we have talked about the, the incredible numbers that were added to the church in Acts. Every time they would get out and share Jesus with people. But they knew what they were carrying. They had that reverence for God. They knew what the fear of the Lord meant for them. And I'm curious to know today, what could the church accomplish in making disciples of the nations if the body carried in its character the fear of the Lord? And let that be the source, let that be the foundation, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. What can be done? But we have to be able to lay, lay aside pettiness and, and things that cause division. Because really, they're, they're of, of no use to us. No use whatsoever. We see where it leads. It leads to scandal. It leads to the church just being made a joke of. Because there is no fear of God. There's no reverence. There's no real worship. There's no radical obedience. You can pray for us. Yeah, let's stand. Hmm. Jesus, sometimes it's so overwhelming to really look at what it is that you've called us into, what it is that we've been invited into, what it is that we've found ourselves surrounded by. And yet here we are. And the only thing left to do is to open our eyes fully and look around and begin to take it all. Holy Spirit, will you open the eyes of our hearts right now in this moment? Open the eyes of our souls to be able to grab hold of what is necessary to nourish ourselves in you. That we would be the ones who go headlong to all the things that you put before us because the only thing we know to fear is you. But we're not moved by every little thing that makes a sound. But we're moved by your voice. 
mark us. God, we want to be marked by your hand. It's not enough for us to just know things anymore. We want to be marked. That our very lives would tell the story of your majestic ways. That we would throw compromise off once and for all. And that we would know who our mother and brothers really are. And all the things that hold us, all of the, the sentimentality that holds us to want to, to seek other false pseudo things to comfort us, God, that we would just throw them off and we would surround ourselves with those who are moving in the right direction. Not not to create division, not to create waves, but to further the kingdom. Let us know, like really know, what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. That we would bring that substance with us into every meeting, every little tiny meeting, whether it be Walmart, the bank, a phone call, we would come with the full counsel and the power that's available to us. Right now, God, we just lift up holy hands to you. We just lift up our lives to you, surrendering once again. Offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, saying one more time, have your way in us. Have your way in us. My life is not my own. Have your way. Lord Jesus, have your way. Do what you will. Even in the stillness this morning, even in the quiet, I can feel you pressing and closing in drawing us in deeper. Even steadying us. I just, I can feel your steadying hand on us. God, right now we just confess that we're content to simply be called by your Nothing else will do. 
We want to be called by your name. We love you.